Let's begin with the first mitzvah in the Torah, which we find in the first chapter of the Torah, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, right after the Almighty creates Adam and Eve, he blesses them, and he tells them you should be fruitful and multiply. Like we mentioned in our introduction, we're going to be following the commentary of the Sefer HaChinuch, the book of education, the book of apprenticeship, a 13th century book organized in the order of the Torah, listing the 613 mitzvos in the order in which they appear. And he breaks it down to four sessions. Every mitzvah that he lists in the Torah, this is the first one, we're going to move on to the next one uh, next week. Uh, He's going to begin with an introduction, what the general mitzvah is and where it appears in the Torah. And then he's going to go to what he calls the Shar Sheha Mitzvah, the roots of the mitzvah, the underpinnings, the philosophical, the rationale of why we have this mitzvah. And like he mentions in the introduction, this is not the whole reason. This is just a way of understanding it to uh, on our level. Why do we have such a mitzvah? And then he gives a uh, a slight survey of the laws of the mitzvah and tells you where to find the full treatment of the laws of the mitzvah in the Talmud. And he ends off with some of the questions of applicability. When does this apply? Is this only in Israel? Is this for men? Is this for women? And some of the general uh, questions of of to whom and where uh, this mitzvah applies. So he begins, uh, mitzvah's period of Arabia, the mitzvah of, of procreation. It's in the book of Bereshis, in Parshas Bereshis, and it's the only mitzvah in Parshas Bereshis. If you read Genesis, there's not a lot of commandments. There's a lot more narrative, a lot of more, a lot more stories. You mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, there's Noah, and there's Adam, Joseph, uh, but there's very few actual commandments. This is what you need to do. There's, in fact, in the whole book, all 12 sections, all you have is three mitzvos, which if that was the ratio for the rest of the book, the rest of the Torah, you'd have a total of 15 mitzvos. Not a lot. And of course, we know we have 613. So there's 610 spread out over the other four books. So he quotes the verse, God blesses them, Adam and Eve, and tells them you should be fruitful and multiply. And then he explains what the roots of the mitzvah are. And if you'll notice, it's it's only around 100 words, a little more than 100 words, his whole take on this mitzvah. Uh, so we're going to go through it, and then we'll add some uh, other interesting things from the rest of, of the Jewish literature on this subject. So why did the Almighty... And give us this mitzvah. So he answers because he wants the Almighty desire that the world be populated, that there should be people here. That's the desire. Of course, the Almighty has his calculations for why he did everything he did. But one thing we see is that this is, he wants there to be continuity in the world for humanity. The, the world is designed for us. And he quotes a verse in Isaiah, Lo tohu bara'ah, the Almighty did not create it to be desolate, to be empty, rather, lashavas yitzara, that it, the Almighty created it, the Almighty formed the world, so it should be, there should be people there. And this is a great mitzvah, and only through this mitzvah can all the other mitzvahs be fulfilled, because if there's no humans, there's no one to fulfill the mitzvahs. Angels can't do a good job, animals can't do a, jo- do a job in fulfilling the Almighty's purpose. Only humanity. Therefore, this is like an enabler to all the other mitzvahs is this. This is a precondition, a necessary precondition to have any of the Torah is the fact that there are humans to be able to do it. And he ends off quoting the Talmud that the Almighty gave the Torah to the, Jew- to, to, to the Jewish people, but to humans... And not to angels. And then he moves on to the third section, the general survey of the laws. When is someone obligated to fulfill it? 
how many children do you need to fulfill your to fulfill your responsibility? Is there any way to sidestep? Is there any way if someone is busy with something even more important that they don't need to fulfill this mitzvah? And the rest of the details of the mitzvah are found in the sixth chapter of the book of Yevamos. And finally, he ends off with the applicability, and he says this mitzvah applies in all places. There's many, many mitzvahs that are limited uh, to the land of Israel, all the agricultural mitzvahs, most of the sacrificial and the laws of purity and impurity. Um, but this applies everywhere and at all times. It's not limited to when the temple is around or things like that. And a person is obligated to try to fulfill it from the time that they are able to do it. And this is an interesting little tidbit about this mitzvah. It's the only mitzvah that doesn't kick in at adulthood. Like when someone becomes bar mitzvah, they're not right away obligated, even though they may be hormonally motivated to do so, but they're not obligated to fulfill this mitzvah until they're older. And he quotes the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that when someone is 18, that's when a kid's in 18 or 20, that's when they're mature, they're an adult, and that's when the mitzvah kicks in. And then he points out that this mitzvah is not applicable on, to women. It's not obligatory to women. It's only obligatory to men, which is, of course, odd given the fact that it's only possible to fulfill the mitzvah with, with women. So this is an interesting thing. Now, in fact, the Talmud brings a dispute. There's some opinions that say that it's obligatory to both men and women, and others say that, no, it's only obligatory towards men. But he is ruling, which is the most widely accepted ruling, that applies only to men. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. And finally, he says if someone disregards this mitzvah, they have disregarded a positive mitzvah in the Torah, and their punishment is very severe, because they are showing, they're exhibiting, they're demonstrating that they don't want to partner with God to help fulfill what he wants to do in his world. That's the entirety of his comment on this mitzvah. So I think a good place to start is that law at the end that it applies uh, only to men and not to women. Now, this is not unique, generally speaking, with mitzvahs. There are many mitzvahs that are only obligatory to men and not to women. There are others that are obligatory to women and not men. So this is not necessarily unique. But I think certainly it is interesting that a man cannot do it himself, so he has to find a way to court, to woo some willing accomplice to help fulfill this mitzvah, and a person who is not actually obligated to do it. It's an interesting reality that emerges. Now, that said, the Talmud does point out that even though the women women are not obligated in this mitzvah, if they do it, then they themselves are fulfilling their own mitzvah because if you help facilitate someone else to do their own mitzvah, that actually counts as a mitzvah for you. So they, the net result is that they both get a mitzvah, but this is something that the women are not obligated. So it's kind of odd. I, my wife speculated that maybe the reason why the Torah does not obligate women to perform this mitzvah is because certainly in ancient times, this was a very dangerous undertaking for a woman to have a baby. The child mortality rates and the women's death in, in pregnancy, labor, and delivery was much, much higher than uh, than it is today, thank, thank God. And therefore, 
Uh, she speculated that maybe this is the reason why a woman ha- she's not being forced to to partake or to undertake such a or what would have been such a very dangerous process. Uh, and therefore, the Almighty says, "I'm not going to obligate her if she wants to opt in. She could opt in, but she can live her whole life and." Come before the Almighty without having any children and say you have no uh, questions on her because she wasn't obligated by it. That that would ex- perhaps explain why women are not actually obligated in this mitzvah. Now, I think it's it, it is interesting. If I was given a list of six hundred thirteen commandments, and I had to give a guess, which one of them would be the first one that appears in the Torah, chapter one? Which would which would be the first one? It, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you would guess this mitzvah because, like he says, it's one that all the other mitzvos hinge upon this one. If there's no humans, there's no Torah, there's no anything, there's no civilization, there's no continuity, there's no settlement of the land, there's no population. Maybe you would say that this ought to be naturally one of the first ones. But I think it's still interesting to to dwell upon why would this be the first mitzvah that appears in a Torah. So I think there's a, a few ways to maybe parse at that idea. So first of all, right at the beginning of the Torah, we're told that man is created in the image of God. Now, what that exactly means, it's it's a big subject, and like half of Kabbalah is trying to decipher and disentangle that question. What, what does this mean that man is similar to God, man is in the image of God? But certainly, I think we could argue that this mitzvah kind of gives us an ability to be eternal. You know, my great, 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 great grandfather, I don't even know who that may, may be, but they're still alive, so to speak. Their chromosomes almost are still alive in this world with, with me. And, you know, Abraham is still alive, not just his ideas have conquered the world, but there's a nation, it's an Abrahamic nation, several, several in fact, Abrahamic nations that are still alive and still biologically He's still here. And this idea that even though man is mortal and ephemeral and we're, we're on it, we have a shelf life and we're here for 70, 80, 90, 100 years and that's it. But we could really leave a, an enduring, eternal, lasting legacy with our own biology, our own children. And that goes on. So that's kind of an interesting idea. Maybe this is a way that someone's similarity to God even though, of course, it's not, it's not a one-for-one. One. It's not totally similar. But the fact that man has the ability to be a creator as well and to have an ability to have eternality is maybe manifested most in this mitzvah, which is an interesting thought to dwell upon. Now, the Talmud also says, it makes a comparison between bearing children and olam haba and the world to come it compares burial to conception and birth to being reborn which is a very interesting thing that uh, conception you know if, if people did not know what conception led to and they just saw the activities that precipitated the conception they wouldn't, in their wild, if an alien was dropped here, they wouldn't imagine that this is creating a new human. Similarly, the Talmud says that even though you're taking a dead body and burying it in the ground, it's, so to speak, like conception. There's like a spiritual conception, and in the future, in Olam it's going to be reborn. 
which again, we see this comparison between this mitzvah and the idea that man has the ability to achieve eternity. And uh, my grandmother, uh, she should live and be well. I have two grandmothers that are both still alive, both of them in advanced age into their mid-90s. So my mother's mother, she is very, very procreation. She herself had 10 children. Both her and her husband went through Auschwitz, like amazing stories. Uh, But they had 10 children and she would always like encourage us to like have more and more kids. (laughs) Whereas my wife's grandfather, like after he finds out that like one of his grandkids like uh, are pregnant the second time or third time, like, what? They don't know where the pharmacy is. (laughs) That, That was his line. But anyhow, uh, so my mother's mother, so my mother's mother, uh, she made this calculation. If someone has seven children, and each one of those seven children have seven children, and so on. So each one of the 49 grandchildren has seven children, and 300 and whatever, 43 great-grandchildren, and so on, right? So within seven generations, it numbers nearly a million souls, in fact, the number is around 960,000. And if you do the math, you kind of flesh this out. A generation is around 27 to 30 years. So we're talking around 200 years and one couple can have a million descendants. And like I think that's just a nice, simple back of the envelope mathematics to show like how quickly this could scale. And again, if you... If we take the misappropriation here on one side and we look at a, a million people, a million descendants, that's like a, a whole nation. You know, that's the, the ability that essentially all stems back to the original patriarchs and, and matriarchs of that dynasty, so to speak. And I think that's a good image to understand, like, why the Talmud would select this mitzvah, this procedure as being the embody, potential embodiment of Eternity and man being, having supernatural and creative powers. Now, it is interesting following along this line of thinking. Well, what's the second mitzvah? Second mitzvah is in, uh, again, in Genesis, it's circumcision, which as we'll see, I don't want to spoil it, but the commentaries explain that's all about almost like reining in man's power in this area and keeping it in check. Uh, maybe that's also a coincidence. Who knows? But. It is interesting, like these first two mitzvahs are both oriented around the ability that man, man, mankind has to be creative. Now, the centrality of this mitzvah is again reinforced by a very famous teaching in the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, on page 31a. The Talmud talks about that after, when someone goes into judgment, they are asked six questions. And those six questions are, Amarava, Adam Ladin, says Rava, at the time that someone is ushered into judgment, they tell him six things. Number one, did you do business with integrity? Number two, did you set aside time for Torah study? Number three, did you engage in procreation? Number four, did you await Redemption. Number five, did you dwell into wisdom? And number six, did you understand one matter from another matter? And we see that essentially 16% of the post 
life debriefing that the Talmud is il- illustrating here is did you engage appropriation? Now, one of the commentaries points out that it doesn't say did you fulfill procreation. It says did you engage in procreation? So some of the commentaries explain that that means that, you know, we know sadly today, you know, one in six couples has problems with infertility. And someone who has biological obstacles to procreation, they can't be blamed for not being successful. Thankfully, today we have all kinds of advancements in technology, you know, IVF and things like that to help uh, couples who are struggling with infertility. But again, ultimately, you can't decide, you can't force the issue. Some, sometimes it just doesn't work biologically. So the commentators explain that like, if someone tries, they engaged in it, they may not have not fulfilled it, but they're not held accountable because they were advancing the interests, so to speak, of this mitzvah and weren't able to, to be successful at it. The Maharsha says something different. He again points out that it says, did you engage? It does not say, did you fulfill? And he understands it as this mitzvah extends beyond biologically producing more children. It extends, did you help others be able to get married and to have the ability to bring more life and vitality into the world. He understands that this mitzvah stands even if you help, if there's a poor person or there's an orphan or there's a widow, people that are, are, are underprivileged due to circumstances beyond their control, people who are at a disadvantage in advancing their, their life and their marriage. Did you help those people get married? Did you help those people find a spouse and enable them to start their own life, that too is a fulfillment of this mitzvah. The Arizal, who is the most important disseminator of Kabbalah, he said another interesting uh, novel idea, that Torah insights is almost like a procreation of its own. And that too would be a fulfillment of this mitzvah. And... Uh, there is precedent for this idea because there's many times in the Talmud where it compares the relationship of the Jewish people and Torah to a spouse, husband and wife. And uh, Shavuot, the Sinai experience, is like a wedding. And therefore, the Jewish nation engaging with Torah and creating new Torah ideas is to a fulfillment of this mitzvah. And finally, there is a very harsh and sharp criticism in the Talmud of people who totally neglect us. The Talmud in the book of Yvamos, first of all, it says that the son of David, which is, of course, a reference to Messiah, is not going to come until all the souls in the heavenly chamber of souls are depleted. In essence, the Talmud is saying there's a, there's a finite amount of souls. All these souls are pre-existing since the six days of creation. And the world is not going to re- achieve its completion until those souls have been depleted. And therefore, everyone who helps usher a soul down from that world to this world with procreation, they're advancing the interest of bringing the world towards completion. But the Talmud is, is very sharp in its criticism of someone who does not fulfill this mitzvah. And it brings three opinions. One opinion is, is that if someone does not fulfill this mitzvah, it's like murder, which, of course, is very harsh criticism. And the idea is, is that, well, 
If someone would pro procreate, there would be a child. If someone does not procreate, well, then there is no child. And then the net effect is the same as murder. Of course, this does not mean to say that it's actually like murder, but that's this, his opinion in the Talmud. Uh, the second opinion in the Talmud is that man is created in the image of God, and if someone is not fulfilling this mitzvah, well, then they're reducing from the image of God. Well, again, very sharp criticism. And finally, Ben Azai comes along, the third opinion, he says it's, it's both. The problem is that Ben Azai himself was not married and didn't have any children. So they say to him, you are the most stringent of all the opinions. You say it's the, the terrible thing not to get to portrait, but you yourself don't practice what you preach. You yourself are not married. And he responds, what can I do? My heart seeks only Torah. Let the world be perpetuated with other people. That's what he says. And in fact, it's interesting. When Rambam lists the laws of procreation, he says, if someone is like Benazai and all they want to do is study Torah, then they are absolved from, from this mitzvah. The, uh, the bottom line of this mitzvah is that it's, again, it's a place where mankind could really display a, an eternal streak. Uh, they are, could aid, so to speak, God in fulfilling his plan for the world. And in reality, they could become, become a partner with the Almighty. The Talmud says that there's three partners in every child. The father, the mother, and the Almighty. Like, we're, like the parents contribute the biology, and the Almighty infuses the soul. And I think this is uh, an incredible idea that we find in this very first midst of the Torah, that we can indeed become partners in God, both in having our child, that the three of us, so to speak, are partners in, and in helping him fulfill what he desires for this world. It should be populated, it should be vibrant. There should be people here that can fulfill the Torah and be players in this wonderful world that he created for us.